Be seated. This is the final message in a three-part series called Rich Toward God, which is coming out of Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 34. And we've seen over the last couple of weeks that there's a kind of logic to the teaching of Jesus around the theme of money and possessions, which is the theme of this text in Luke 12. In verses 13 to 21, there's an expose of a lie. And the lie that we are all a lot more tempted to believe than we'd like to admit that greater possessions equals greater life. And Jesus confronts that lie and exposes it and and then calls us not to store up treasure for ourselves, but to be rich toward God. And to be rich toward God means to live a life that basically is defined by this question, God, what do you want me to do with your stuff? And then doing whatever he says with it. And then Jesus turns in verses 22 to 31 to deal with the barrier to living rich toward God, a common barrier, one that we all know and and feel deep within us, which is an anxiety over not having enough. And Jesus addresses that uh, again and, and clears away that barrier by reminding us that God is our Father, and He's a Father who knows what we need and who provides for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And therefore, will he not provide for you, O you of little faith, he says. And so he he reminds us of the provision of our Father and says, basically, you're not cosmic orphans, but you are children of the King. And therefore, you do not need to be consumed by anxiety in your life over having enough. Now, to say that we are to trust in God's provision doesn't mean uh, or doesn't produce free riders who simply don't go to work and just rely or take advantage of the state or the church or the generosity of others. Rather, trusting God's provision enables uh, faithful, non-anxious work, work which is an act of joyful worship that provides for our own needs, for the needs of our family and and for the needs of others. Some of you will remember in Ephesians 4.28, Paul is writing instructions to the church and he says, let the thief no longer steal, but let, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In other words, trusting the provision of God isn't an excuse to not doing work. So we work to provide for our needs, but as we work, we simultaneously trust in the provision of God, which means that we no longer have to be anxious, no longer have to orient our lives and all of our ambitions and our hopes and our energies around making sure that we have enough, Instead, Jesus says that we are able to then seek his kingdom. We are to orient our lives and our ambitions and our pursuits around this restorative project that is the kingdom of God that has at its heart healing and forgiveness and reconciliation and renewal that we've been privileged to be invited into. And seeking his kingdom entails that all that we are is to be oriented around this, including our use of money and possessions oriented around the life-giving work of God. So if we resist the temptation to think that life comes from our stuff, which is what he deals with in the parable of the rich fool, and if we are no longer consumed by the anxiety over whether we will have enough, which is what he does when he looks at the birds and, and the grass, and we're striving for his kingdom, then the question is, what, what does this striving look like? in relation to money and possessions? Or to ask the question that we've been asking, what does God want me to do with his stuff? And in verse 33, Jesus gives us a straight 
but very challenging answer to that question that is the focus of our time together this morning. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. So as we look at this, these three verses together today, we want to look first at how Jesus prepares us for this challenging call, second at the call itself, and then third at the motivations that Jesus taps into to encourage us to walk after or to heed this call. I know the call has just shocked all of you, so we'll get to that in a moment. Let's start at verse 32, though, with the preparation. I think Jesus knows that in spite of everything he's already taught in the previous sections coming up to this moment, that he needs to do a little bit more work to prepare us for what he is about to say in verse 33. So he says in verse 32, look with me at the text, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is tender language little flock. And with that phrase, Jesus evokes the long history of this metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep that depicts God's relationship with his people. God is the shepherd, the provider and the protector, and we are his flock. Psalm 95, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Psalm 100, we are his, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And then most famously, of course, in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want. Fear not, little flock. You know, one of the things I love about the ministry of Jesus is that Jesus never shies away from challenging his disciples. And this is certainly one of the more challenging texts. But at the same time, Jesus is always communicating the grace and mercy and tenderness of his Father toward us, his people. And this is one of those places where this happens so well, just in two successive verses. But here he, he starts with that message. And of course, he's just come out of the teaching about the lilies and the birds. And will not God clothe you? Your father knows your needs. Don't be like all the other nations of the world that seek after these things. God knows your needs. Seek his kingdom and all these things will be, these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, he says. Don't be afraid. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The verb that's translated in the ESV, good pleasure, is actually an aorist, and it connotes a completed action. I actually think the NIV gets it a little better here. It says, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. He's not just pleased now or in the future, but he has been pleased already to give you the kingdom. And this is what Jesus is saying. If you have his kingdom, if you're brought into this gift of restoration and healing and forgiveness and new life and certain hope and love, all these things that are key marks of his kingdom, then what on earth could you be afraid of? You've been given this gift. What else could you really want? Honestly, so much of our anxiety and fear in our lives, and we all wrestle with these things, but so much of it, I think, is rooted in the fact that there's a diminished view of the gift of God for us. That that's been obscured in some way and we can't see it as clearly as we're encouraged to see it by Jesus in his word. Jesus said, remember, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? What he's saying is nothing compares to life. Genuine life, never-ending, overflowing, exuberant life. 
And it is God alone who gives us that life as we enter into his kingdom by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We become recipients of this amazing gift of God. Which means that the scales are eternally unbalanced with the treasure of God's undeserved, unending life on the one side. Nothing Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can tip the scales in the other direction. You are blessed. You've received God's favor once and for all, and this is done, and nothing else can ever, out, can ever tip the scales in the other direction. It's an incredible gift. And seeing now that this has been done and completed and that it's a permanent reality in your life and in mine, now that we've been given the kingdom, fear not, he says. Little flock, don't be afraid. Be strong and courageous, as one of our children just said to us, for I am with you. Fear not, little flock. So that's the preparation. And then secondly, let's consider the call because verse 32 is leading into now these challenging words in verse 33. It all prepares the way as those who have the kingdom, as those who have life, as those who have this kind of father in heaven who knows your needs, as those who know that life is not bound up in your possessions, in having money and having stuff, as those who are seeking his kingdom, as those who no longer need to be anxious or afraid, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. With these short and simple and easy to understand words, Jesus calls us to a radical and countercultural relationship with our stuff. He's not just saying give to the needy. That was the standard ethic for the people of God throughout their covenant relationship with him in all the years leading up to this, it was fitting to respond to the grace of God in our lives by sharing what we have with those in need. We saw in Deuteronomy 15 the call to open wide your hand to the needy and to the poor. And in Psalm 112, we read about the description of the man who fears the Lord as one who has distributed freely. He is given to the poor. But Jesus goes further than this here. He just ratchets it up a little bit. He says not merely are we to give out of our abundance or our overflow or our surplus, which was, of course, the subject of his parable about the rich fool that we looked at two weeks ago, but to divest ourselves of our possessions so that we may give to the needy. Now, a lot of times when Jesus says things, we think it's hyperbole. Because he does use hyperbole. You remember he says to hate your father and mother and your wife and children and even your own life. And if you don't do that, you can't be my disciple. We know he doesn't want us to actually hate our family. Is this hyperbole? As we follow Luke's writing in the gospel here, not only in this first volume, but then into his second volume in the book of Acts, I think we realize that we're supposed to take Jesus' teaching here very seriously. There is this powerful counterexample. Luke chapter 18. Jesus meets this rich ruler. And you remember, he says to him essentially what he kind of says here. He, he tells this man to sell all that he has and to give to the poor so that he might have treasure in heaven, which is also in our text here. We'll get to that in a moment. And come and follow me, Jesus says. Follow Jesus. And you remember the rich ruler's response. 
Instead of obeying Jesus, he goes away sad. His possessions mean too much. He's unable to let go, unable to yield, unable to loosen his tight grip upon his possessions. And because of that, presumably missing out on the life of the kingdom into which Jesus is inviting him. It's a counterexample. And, and then actually in Luke's writings, we get three very clear examples of this kind of living. A chapter later in Luke 19, you'll remember uh, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who was up in the tree and saw Jesus, and Jesus comes to his home, and he encounters Jesus, and Jesus gives him the grace of welcome and forgiveness that this man who had to be ashamed of his life and, and racked with greed had so longed for. And that's why he climbed the tree to see this teacher that he'd heard about. And as soon as he meets Jesus, what does he do? Do you remember? He says, I give away half of my goods to the poor. And those whom I've defrauded, I restore fourfold. He had radically changed Zacchaeus' relationship to his possessions. Then in Acts chapter 2, we see in the early church that Christians were, quote, selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And then again in Acts chapter 4, we read, quote, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need, unquote. And then after that, we're told that Barnabas, we get this specific illustration and example, that Barnabas did this very thing, that he sold a field and he laid the money from the sale at the apostles' feet. Zacchaeus, the early Christians, Barnabas, the singular example in Acts 4, these all encountered Jesus. They all came to faith, genuine faith in him, and their relationship to their possessions was radically reoriented such that they could actually obey the words of Jesus that we read in verse 33 of chapter 12. They sold their possessions and they gave to the needy. And the question is this, has our encounter with Jesus, with the life of the kingdom, as our identity as children of the Father, as the flock of God, has this radically reoriented our relationship to our possessions as well. Now, let me note this. Many of you are probably thinking about these exceptions, so let me note a few things just as we kind of sit with this challenging thing. It's worth noting that Zacchaeus only sold half of his possessions, not all of them, so it does mean he kept the other half. And the field that Barnabas sold was probably a part of his inheritance, and not the actually field or land upon which he lived. So he also kept some things. And likely the disciples, we believe, that they still had their fishing boats at least. And their nets after the resurrection of Jesus. Remember he found them fishing in John chapter 21. So they, they kept some means of providing for themselves and their families. And, and it would be fair and clear to say that Jesus did not, does not specifically call each of us to take a vow of poverty. He may call some of us to that, but that's not a general call. But in verse 33 of Luke chapter 12... He does speak to his disciples in a general sense and say, change your relationship to your stuff. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. A change that he would argue is reflecting the fact that we have received as the little flock of God the kingdom and that we have never-ending life. And let me say this, that from the perspective of biblical faith, that this makes sense. 
because we no longer believe that life comes from our stuff. That lie has been exposed. Because we're no longer worried about having enough. Because God is our Father, and he's already given us Jesus. Why won't he give us everything else, Paul says. And because we know that we have God as our great good, our greatest possession, the Lord is my portion, that gets repeated so many times in the Psalms. Because we have one who is so much better, the God of the universe, the God whom Psalm 50 says owns the cattle on a thousand hills. This is the God who commands the sun to rise and to set and who upholds the seasons and makes the earth spring forth abundance an abundance that feeds the lilies of the field and the birds of the air clothes the lilies and feeds the birds neither of whom fret nor worry a God who knows our needs who is on our side and who has promised to take care of us and because this God is our possession because we need nothing else really ultimately other than him because in him we have all that we need Because we know that he is life and that we cannot get life from our possessions or our food or our vacations or our retirement accounts or our investment funds or education and so on. Because God is life. And all of this comes leading up to verse 33, right? We can sell our possessions. We can let go of our stuff and give to the needy. In doing so, we become like our Father who is generous and merciful and who gave up not his greatest possession per se, but gave up his son so that we might have life. And as we do this, we express the life of the rule and reign of God, of his kingdom, which is good news for the poor. We read about in Luke chapter 4, quoting Isaiah 61 there, Jesus is. And I would submit to you that this, specific, this is the specific call of this pericope in Luke chapter 12, of this text, of what does it mean to be rich toward God? Proverbs 19, 17 says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. And most of you will remember the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 25. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And they're like, when did we do this, Lord? Whenever you did it to one of the least of these. You did it to me. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. That's the call. Let's move thirdly and finally to the motivation. The motivation that Jesus gives to walk in this way. And we'll still wrestle with the call in a few minutes as well. But he says in verse 33, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. This use of our possessions, of our resources, is the way of true and lasting treasure, Jesus says. And this is important. Jesus appeals to our desire to acquire things of value. I always like to to say to people, you cannot be more holy than Jesus. So Jesus appeals to that desire that we have to acquire wealth, to acquire things of value. But Jesus takes that desire and he redirects it, doesn't he? You want to be truly wealthy, he says, Do you want to have things of real value? Do you want to have real treasure? He says, then use your possessions to make a better trade, a better investment. It's a bit like insider trading. You know what's really coming to pass. So plan accordingly right now. 
in Randy Alcorn's little book from 2005, The, the Treasure Principle. Randy's a Christian author, and he's done a good bit of reflection on the theme of money and possessions, and I do commend his work if you want to dig deeper. He uses this illustration. He says, imagine you're alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you are a northerner. You plan to move home as soon as the war is over. So while in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Southern money? If you're smart, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in your currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have value once the war is over. Keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs. Well, we know that Jesus has won the war and that the currency of the kingdom is all that has lasting value. So Jesus is inviting us to cash in the currencies of this world. And here it is, possessions. But I do think we could add to that list our money, our social capital, our relational capital, these things that are of great value in our lives. He's encouraging us to cash these things in by using them for those in need. And so to build up currency in his eternal kingdom. Given that we know what's coming and that everything will be reversed, this makes complete sense. Here are these words from J.C. Ryle at the end of the the, the 19th century. He was a a pastor and a a scholar, a well-known writer. But a day is coming upon all of us when the value of everything shall be altered. A day is coming when banknotes shall be as useless as rags and gold shall be as worthless as the dust of the earth. A day is coming when thousands shall care nothing for the things for which they once lived and shall desire nothing so much as the things which they once despised. The halls and palaces will be forgotten in the desire of a house not made with hands. The favor of the rich and great will be no more remembered in the longing for the favor of the king of kings. The silks and satins and velvets and laces will be lost sight of. All shall be altered. All shall be changed in the great day of the Lord's return. And we know this now. We know this now. And because we are in on the truth, because we know that possessions hoarded for ourselves give us no life, because we know that there's, there's nothing that they can do for us in the world to come, because we know that possessions sold and given away to those in need are a way to build up treasure in heaven that never fails, then live like this, Jesus teaches. The major contrast that Jesus makes is actually around the security and permanence of these two different kinds of treasure. And we know this, right? Our wealth here is insecure. It's interesting, when Paul is addressing the rich in 1 Timothy 6, he says, tell them not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Jesus says thieves can break in and steal, or moths can destroy it by, in that that day, spoiling grain or clothing. That's a little hard for us to relate. We don't think of moths kind of challenging our possessions and our inheritance. But think about the dot-com bust of the late 90s or the stock market crash in the late mid-2000s. We can face an unexpected medical issue that can drain away our savings. We can get into a, a dispute at the workplace with our business partner that ends in a lawsuit that drains our funds. We have college and school expenses that can snatch away the little we have and so on and so forth. Proverbs 23 verses 4 through 6 says, Do not wear yourself out to get rich and have, the wi- and have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Here today, gone tomorrow. 
Jesus is saying, look, you can throw a lot into that, but you can't guarantee anything. But investments in the kingdom produce unfailing treasure and money bags that don't wear out. Now, we, we sometimes wrestle, what does this mean? You know, I remember being a kid, maybe even beyond a kid, thinking like, well, there are going to be some people living in the Beverly Hills of the new creation, driving a Bentley, and some are going to be living in the slums and probably don't have a car. And I don't think that's what Jesus is getting on about here. I don't think it's fair to read permanent distinctions for eternity into the biblical texts that speak about treasure in heaven. The rich ruler passage of Luke 18 equates treasure in heaven with eternal life, with the reality of your membership and belonging in the kingdom of God. And that's something that we long for. At the same time, having said that, we do expect to have different experiences of walking into the kingdom when Jesus returns, of giving an account for all that we've done in our deeds in the body. And we see this in, even in 1 Corinthians 3. We won't go into that right now, but that sense of some build and, their, and what they build, it lasts. It, it is so built on the foundation and the values of the kingdom of God that it, it is brought into the new creation. And others, they build the stray and, haw and, and, and straw, straw and hay and stubble and it just burns up in the judgment. And they are saved, but as through fire. There will be a sense of that sense of accounting before the judgment seat of Christ in which he will say to us well done good and faithful servant and there will be praise given to us for the way in which we stewarded that which he had entrusted to us in this present life but I think when we are in we are in and there's a sense in which there the treasures in heaven that do not fail are the, the simply the life of the kingdom that we will all forever enjoy and that is permanent and indestructible and the point of Jesus with this perspective about the differences between the permanence and security of two different kinds of treasure is he's saying the most sensible thing to do now is to take the one kind of treasure that you can't really guarantee anyway and, and use it to build into the other that can never be changed. Sell your possessions. That's what it means. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Don't cling and build, but give and give more and more to care for the needs of others from what you have, to be rich in good deeds and do everything that you can to enable this to happen through your life more and more. Live with simplicity. And yes, this is deeply challenging to the conventional wisdom of our world, but it makes perfect sense from the perspective of the kingdom of God. We have nothing to lose. We have everything to gain. What's the worst that could happen to you? You could die. And I know that's a big deal, and I don't mean to make light of it, but it's not in light of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom. Or you could become dependent upon others. And I know some people might start complaining about this kind of teaching. I want to remind you that Jesus taught, not me. Jesus is teaching this. Um, they, they, start to, they can start to complain, well, isn't that just irresponsible? Isn't that unwise? And, and I understand that, that there could be a way in which that's the case. But I want us to say, let's first just let this teaching hit us. Let's let, it, let's let us sit with it and wrestle with it because I can say this, I'm confident that God will not let one of us languish because we have taken Jesus at his word. I know that for a fact. And as we walk in this radical teaching of Jesus, I am confident that God will pour out more and more of his life upon us. I didn't finish Proverbs 19:17, but I'm going to finish it now. It's the, the proverb that says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. And how does the proverb finish? And he will repay him for his deed. God will repay you for your deed, he says. Test me, he says, in the book of Malachi. 
And then Jesus teaches one more thing in verse 34. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, we hear a lot about following your heart. We hear a lot about I can't change my desires and the things that I long for. And you know what? Jesus has some really encouraging teaching for us here. You can actually change your heart, he says. Your heart will follow your treasure. We often complain about that. Like, I can't change what's inside of me. And there's some truth to that. We're all wholly dependent upon the grace of God. But here Jesus actually says, start investing your treasure in the things of God's kingdom and your heart will follow. Do you want to grow deeper in love with God? Then start to give to his purposes and his work. Start to share with those in need more, more and more. Start to invest in the, the work of the gospel here locally and around the globe. We all know this, don't we? If you're invested in your house, if you're invested in your education, if you're invested in your business, if you're invested in your health, then of course your interest begins to follow this. If you buy stock in a company, I'm going to guess that you're a little bit more interested in the headlines about that company in the, in the months and years ahead. It's just the way it works, Jesus says. So if you're invested in the kingdom of God, if you're giving and you're serving and you're pouring the things of value that God's entrusted with you, to you in this world into the kingdom, then your heart will follow. And that's a tremendously encouraging truth that Jesus teaches us, that we can leverage the things of this world that have been given to us by God to help our hearts grow in love for him and his kingdom. So I want to just conclude. How, how might we be responding? Well, I, I know some of us here might be thinking, you know, I don't even have enough already. How am I supposed to respond to this teaching of Jesus. And if that's where you sit this morning, I want to recognize that's a, a genuine issue. And that as the church, as the people of God, we want to come alongside of you, alongside of one another, and wrestle with those things together. But I would at least still like to ask you, has your relationship to Jesus changed the way that you relate to the little that you already do have? Because I can say this with confidence that every single one of us in this room or at least maybe I should qualify with almost, has so much more than the vast majorities of our brothers and sisters in Jesus around the globe. Some of us might be thinking, well, am I supposed to sell my car, my house? Am I supposed to give up my vacation? Am I supposed to stop saving as much, to stop contributing to my retirement account so that I can give more away? I can't answer that question. Like you, I wrestle with my king over these matters. We wrestle with Jesus, don't we? When he speaks to us like this. I can tell you that all the things I just mentioned are not wrong. They're not inherently sinful. But I can also say this, that any time you answer one of those questions in the affirmative, in obedience to Jesus, any time you pursue greater simplicity so that you might have more to give away to those in need, any time you make a decision to be rich toward God, this will lead to more, not less, life. Genuine life. Whole life. Abundant life. And that's contrary to what our inclination is, isn't it? We think, don't we, that if we give up those things that I just mentioned to meet the needs of others, that we will be more insecure and less fulfilled when the reality from faith is exactly the opposite. 
we will be more fully enveloped into the life of God and far more alive both now and for all eternity. God is life. There is no other life. And God is a Father who knows what you need and who richly provides for each one of us to live rich toward God is to live more and more like the one who gave up not his possessions, but his life to meet our needs. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And as becoming genuinely rich, having the treasure of the kingdom, then you now might also become poor, that through your poverty others might become rich as well. That's life. That's the logic of the kingdom. That's the heart of Jesus here. And these challenging words, anytime Jesus challenges us, he's doing it as a king who loves us deeply, who knows our propensity to fall under the sway of the idols of this age. And he's calling us and saying to us, I love you. I love you. I know you. And I long for you to come into deeper and fuller expression of my kingdom and to live for all eternity. And you only have this shot. Do it well. Do it well. Don't think that you can get life from your stuff. Don't be anxious about not having enough. But divest yourself for the kingdom. Live rich toward God. And let's do this together as the body. We need one another. We need our counsel and our wisdom. And we need also the sense that as you do this, we're here. We are the, we are the extension of Jesus' love for you as you take him up at his word to provide for and to care for one another. That's what was going on in Acts 2 and Acts 4. And that's what still goes on in the church today. So let's go. Let's be rich toward God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, we wrestle with you deeply over these things. And we invite you this morning to, to speak personally. You know each one of us. You know each one of us. You know how much we give and how much we keep. You know how much we make and how much we save. Lord, you know our attitude toward possessions. You know our fears and anxieties. You know, Lord, where we trust you and where we don't. I simply cry out to you on behalf of my brothers and sisters and this church family, Lord, that you would work on each of us, that you would grow us to greater maturity in you. As we hear these challenging words of yours, we pray that you would apply them in our lives in a way that brings glory and honor to you. And we cry out to you sincerely, Lord, for your intervention. We long, in response to your grace and fatherly care, we long to live a life of the kingdom, to live richly toward you. Please, Lord, be glorified through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.